So get to know this passage. We're going to be in the first 18 verses, which is the prologue of the Gospel. Uh, many of you know it almost by heart. It's a very familiar passage. The series that we're going to be doing during Advent is called Listen. Jesus is called and presented as the Word, the Word of God, the message, the communication of God. Because in Jesus, God ultimately revealed Himself. God spoke to us through prophets, and He speaks to us through creation, and yet the ultimate revelation comes through Jesus. And that's why Jesus is called the Word. If you look at these first 18 verses, and we'll only read five today, but you will see that a lot of the themes that John is going to be following through on in the rest of the book are present here. So themes like the Word and light, life, belief, all those things he's going to pick up on later on in the book. But he's sort of given us a preview of what is to come, what's he going to, what he's going to develop later. There's no suspense with John. He starts out big. He tells us exactly who Jesus is. He's not hiding anything. Some other Gospels, like Mark, for example, He's going to allow us to figure it out as we go and hear the story, figure out who Jesus really is. No, not John. There's no secrets, no suspense. He's going to tell us right away who Jesus is, especially about his, about his divinity. John communicates these profound, these deep ideas by using very simple language. And you'll get a taste of that in the first five verses. So let's read it together. John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, not overcome it. This is our text. Let's, let's pray that God would add his blessing on the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through scripture and that ultimately you speak to us through Jesus. Allow us to hear Jesus as we look at this passage. Allow us to be changed by what we hear. We pray in his name. Amen. I have uh, two simple goals today based on this passage. I'd like to proclaim Christ's excellencies and I'd like to exhort his people. Proclaim his excellencies and exhort his people. The proclaiming excellencies comes, this phrase comes from 1 Peter 2.9, where it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when we proclaim His excellencies, how great He is, we're not talking about somebody we don't know. We're talking about Jesus who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So when we're talking about the excellencies of Jesus, we're talking about somebody we know, somebody that we experience, somebody that called us out, that delivered us, that changed us. This is a familiar person to us. So let's proclaim His excellencies based on this text in John. First, excellency of his existence. John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word clearly means Jesus here. So in the beginning was Jesus. What does John mean by the beginning? 
How far back does he go? The beginning of what? Well, if you go back to Genesis 1, verse 1, the very first phrase in the Bible, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's how far back John goes. He starts out big. He wants us to know that before anything was created, Jesus was. That before anything existed, Jesus existed. John introduces Jesus by going back to the very beginning of the universe, to the time of creation, to the point when nothing existed but God himself. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God. John says, in the beginning, the Word, Jesus. So he places Jesus right there, right in the eternity past. Or as A.W. Pink says, John takes us back to the beginning and shows that the Lord Jesus had no beginning. You see, before anything existed, Jesus was. He already was. There was never a time when Jesus was not. The Word is an uncreated, eternal being like the Father. John wants us to see that the Jesus that was born to the peasant girl in Bethlehem has existed in eternity. What a start to a book. Like I said, no suspense here. He's going to come out swinging. He's going to tell you exactly who Jesus is. He's not going to let you figure it out on your own. He's going to tell you that the person we're dealing with is an eternal person, is a person who's always existed before anything that we know to be real happened. Jesus was. John wants us to be in awe of Jesus. He wants us to marvel at him. He wants us to worship him as an eternal God. That's the beginning of the book. Now let's try to track with him. Let's try to get into what John is saying. Because that's how he introduces Jesus to us. There's an excellency of his existence, of his eternity. There's also an excellency of his person. And the Word was with God. The Word was with God. The Word is eternal, like God. And yet he is distinct from God because he was with God. So this Jesus, the eternal being, who was before anything was created, who's uncreated himself, is not the same as God the Father. Jesus was with God. God the Son was with God the Father from eternity past. The Son, Jesus, the Word, is a distinct person from the Father. Here we find a mystery of the Trinity, a teaching that is so clear throughout the Scriptures. If you read Scriptures, it is, it is hard to get away from the idea that Jesus is God. And yet, Scripture so clearly tells us that God is one. One in essence, and yet there are three divine persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is distinct from the Father and from the Spirit. And not just because He became human, at a certain point in time, Jesus was distinct from the Father and the Spirit from eternity past. Before the Word became flesh, He was with God, the Father. Eternal, like the Father. Glorious, like the Father. Powerful and wise, like the Father. Worthy of our worship and honor, like the Father. And yet, distinct from Him. Not the Father. 
Later in the Gospel, John will also talk about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But here, his simple words paint a clear picture. The Word is God, but the Word is not the same person as God the Father. Now, I understand that we're dealing with these issues that just don't add up in our human minds. I understand that. The way humans do arithmetic is different from the way God does it. But let's trust Scripture that God is one in essence and yet three in persons. So when you pray, for example, and you say, Father, I thank you that you died for me. That is incorrect. You can't pray like that. That's not true. The Father didn't die for you. Who died for you? The Son. Jesus died for you. But it is correct to say that God died for me. It is correct to say that because Jesus is completely God. So herein lies the mystery. We can embrace it, yes. We can be confident in it, yes. But we can't comprehend it. God is one in essence, and yet three in persons. Jesus is distinct from the Father. There is an excellency of His person. There is also an excellency of His relationship with the Father. Now again, let's, let's try to, to be careful the way we use words to describe these deep things of God. But let's peek into this eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. It is clear that Jesus was with God the Father in eternity. They were in a relationship in eternity forever. Listen to Alexander McLaren. He makes a comment on the preposition with. He notices that one little word and he says, the preposition employed means accurately towards and expresses the thought that in the word there was motion or tendency towards and not merely association with God. It points to reciprocal conscious communion and the active going out of love in the direction of God. The last clause asserts the community of essence, which is not inconsistent with distinction of persons and makes the communion of active love possible. For none could in the depth of eternity dwell with and perfectly love and be loved by God except one who himself was God. What is he talking about? He's saying that there is a relationship, there is a community within the Godhead, that God the Father loves God the Son and God the Son delights in the love of the Father, that they are perfectly happy together, that there is there's a fulfilling and rewarding and satisfying relationship that's been going on for eternity. And so, when we talk about God creating us or God loving us, we need to be very careful not to assume, as some do, that God needed to do that. That God needed a companion or a community to be a part of. God does not need that. And God doesn't need us. God is perfectly fulfilled in the harmonious relationship between the Father and the Son God is self-sufficient in His own love, and His own glory. So when God decides to create, when God says, let there be light, or let us make man and woman in our image, when God says that, He's not saying, I need to do that because there's something lacking in me. I need somebody to worship me. I need somebody to talk with me. I need to tell somebody how I feel. He's not saying that, and He's not feeling that. God is perfectly happy within the Godhead. And so, the question is, why does He create? 
Why does he reach out to us? Why does he choose to love us? The answer to that is that it's a sovereign, free choice of God. That God at some point said, I don't need to love them, I don't need to make them, I don't need to make the universe, but I will do that. And out of the, the, the outpouring of the Trinitarian love that he feels comes creation. Out of that outburst of divine love comes creation. It is an amazing thing to consider because it gives us tremendous security in how God feels about us and what he thinks of us because it's not dependent on us. But it also makes us marvel that, that God didn't have to do any of that. That he did that because there's something in his nature that moves him to love. And though he's completely satisfied within himself, he chooses to share that love with us. And so God creates. These things are too deep for us. But we can, we can grasp it even just a little bit. And that changes it. It changes how we see creation in the world. So God's creation of us, his love for us, did not come out of necessity, but as a free, sovereign choice. God chooses to love us because he is full of love. Love is not something that appeared when he created us. He didn't make it. Love is his nature. And his love for us is birthed out of and nourished by this eternal loving relationship among the persons of the Trinity. I'm going to quote a rather lengthy quote from Spurgeon, the, the famous uh, London preacher, because frankly I can't do what he does when I describe these things. I don't have enough, enough talent for this. Too bad for you, but we have Spurgeon that comes to our rescue. So let me quote from Spurgeon that he he meditates on the relationship that the Father has with the Son. And he, he describes it in such a way that it, it must, it has to move us. Let me read this. Oh, the intensity of the divine love of the Father to the Son. There was no world, no sun, no moon, no stars, no universe, but God alone. And the whole of God's omnipotence flowed forth in a stream of love to the Son while the Son's whole being remained eternally one with the Father by a mysterious, essential unity. How did all this which we now see and hear happen? Why this creation, this fall of Adam, this redemption, this church, this heaven? How did it all come about? It didn't need to have been, but the Father's love made him resolve to show forth the glory of his Son. The mysterious story, which has been gradually unfolded before us, has only this one design. The Father would make known His love to the Son and make the Son's glories appear before the eyes of those whom the Father gave Him. This fall and this redemption, and the story as a whole, so far as the divine purpose is concerned, are the fruit of the Father's love to the Son and His delight in glorifying the Son. That the Son might be glorified forever, the Father permitted that He should take on a human body and should suffer, bleed, and die. Why? So there might come out of Him, as a harvest comes from a dying and buried grain of wheat, all the countless hosts 
of elect souls, ordained forever to a joy exceeding bounds. These are the bride of the Lamb, the body of Christ, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Their destiny is so high that no language can fully describe it. God only knows the love of God and all that it has prepared for those who are the objects of it. What's Spurgeon talking about? Even Spurgeon says, there's no words I can describe it because it's so marvelous, it's so wonderful that all that we see, all that we hear, all the reality that we know came about as God, the Father's decision to glorify His Son. Isn't that amazing? That we get to participate in that and we get to be loved by God because God the Father loves the Son. All that we see is for His glory. All that we see is to display the glories of the Son. The reason Jesus came and died and rose again is because the Father wanted to delight in Him even more. The Father wanted to display His glories to the world. And so creation is part of God's design to exalt the Son. That's amazing. That's amazing to contemplate those things. And Spurgeon is right. We run out of words when we speak of these things. There's an excellency of Christ's divinity, His deity, His being God as well. John says, the Word was God. The Word was God. How much clearer do you need to be to understand that Jesus is God? Jesus is divine. He is a deity in the same way that God the Father is divine, in the same way the Spirit is divine. There are people who come to your door sometimes that tell you Jesus is not divine. He's a lesser being. Jesus was created at some point. That yes, he's like God, but he's not God in the same way. Well, read scripture. What does John say? The word was God. There are no doubts. There are no shades of meaning here. Jesus was God. Even when Jesus took on the the human nature, his divine nature was not given up. Jesus remained God, even though he became human. Jesus now is God and human at the same time. While the Son is distinct from the Father, he is not distinct in essence. He is God in the same way that the Father is God and the Spirit is God. Again, notice the picture that John wants us to see. No suspense, right? He's telling us exactly who Jesus is. An eternal being who was with the Father, who enjoyed and delighted in the love of the Father. This eternal being who is God completely, like the Father is, and yet a different person. There's an excellency of His creation. That's where it becomes a little more understandable to us. John says, all things were made through Him, through Jesus. And without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. Without Jesus, nothing can exist. Without Jesus, nothing would exist that does exist. All of creation, all its visible and invisible parts, were created through Jesus. Colossians 1 says, By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
all things were created through Him and for Him. In He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Again, how much clearer can you be to say that everything exists because of Jesus? Not only did He create everything, but He holds it together. If Jesus lets go, everything falls apart. All things, material things like mountains and rivers and clouds and stars and chicken wings and chips, all of that is created by Jesus. All the material things came from Jesus. All the immaterial things, things like emotions and thoughts and desires and plans and ambitions, all of that was created by Jesus as well. Not only did Jesus create a beautiful waterfall, but he created beauty itself. Who thought off of a thing like beauty? Jesus. And we're enjoying it. We can look at something and say, this is beautiful. But we can only say that because he created the beautiful thing and he gave us the concept of beauty. You can say something is truthful, something is true, something is real, but you can only say that because he made it real and because he told you and instilled in your mind the concept of reality. It's amazing. Everything depends on him. Not only that Jesus is the agent of creation, through whom everything was made, but he is the source or the fountain of all life. So everything that lives, everything that has life, animals and plants and people, they all live because Jesus gives them life. Because in some way they are still connected to him. Well, that's John's introduction to Jesus. A glorious, exalted view of our Savior. Not exactly what we think of Jesus at Christmas time, is it? Not exactly the way our culture portrays Jesus at Christmas time. But if this picture of Jesus is accurate, if what John tells us is really true, and that is the way to introduce Jesus and for us to understand Jesus, if Jesus really is this divine, eternal person responsible for absolutely everything that exists, that he is distinct from the Father, yet one with him, enjoying the love and the delight of the Father? If he is God and everything that it means? If John's description of Jesus is accurate, how should it affect us? How should it correct us? So let's exhort his people. We've proclaimed his excellencies. Let us now exhort his people. If this is accurate, the question is, do we treat Jesus, do we treat him according to this picture? When you think about your relationship with Jesus, does it correspond to this exalted vision of him? Do you relate to Jesus as this eternal, divine, self-sufficient, all-powerful, life-given creator of absolutely everything? Is your relationship with him marked with awe, worship, respect, obedience, and honor that are due to him as God. Ask yourself that. Be honest with yourself. Is that how you see Jesus? Is that how you treat him? I'm afraid that for many of us the answer is no. That's not how we treat him. I think for many of us we have mistaken the master for the butler. 
We've gone into a mansion and we saw the master and we mistook him for the bucket. I wonder if we were to look into our relationship with Jesus, we would discover that the Jesus we know is not the exalted divine figure of John 1, but is a servant, somebody that we call on when we need something. The one who created time itself somehow has to fit into our schedule. The one who created all aspects of existence is only allowed into certain parts of our life. Do you see how ridiculous that sounds if you know who Jesus is? That we say, Jesus, you've created everything, all the aspects of my life, and yet I'm going to deliberately withhold these aspects from you. You can rule here, but you cannot rule here, as if you have no relation to this part of my life. I will give you my food, but I won't give you my sexuality. That's what we do all the time. I will give you my Sunday, but I won't give you my money. How can it be? How self-absorbed and how self-centered we, we are that we think that we can treat Jesus like that? He's not your butler. Jesus is not your butler. He's not your servant. You can't treat him like that. Read what John says. This exalted vision of Christ. All-powerful, all-wise creator the Word of God, the communication of God into your life. And yet, we treat Him like our butler. It's as if we think that Jesus needs to score high on His job performance evaluations to keep His job. Are you always evaluating Jesus? And wondering how well He's done lately for you? Why is it that we treat Jesus as if we're always asking, what have you done for me lately, Jesus? What have you done yesterday and today? Have you served me well? Have you provided for me well and on time? It's as if we're doing him a favor by, by employing him in our service. Is that your relationship with Christ? It's as if we're saying, you've got to do better than this, Jesus. You've got to do better. If you want to be my Savior, you've got to do better. If you don't make my food right, I might just send it back, Jesus. You better do it well. You better get it right. Man, how many of us think about Jesus in those terms? How amazingly selfish we are. How amazingly ignorant and clueless we are of who he really is. And praise God for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness that he bears with us. That he doesn't destroy us when we treat him like this beautiful, eternal, divine person who comes into our world and we treat him as nothing. So we must treat him accordingly to who he is. We must also trust him accordingly. If his love for us is really rooted in his eternal, unchanging love within the Trinity, how much do you think he loves us? if the source of his affection for us is the delight that the Son has in the Father, eternally, being totally satisfied in it, being totally fulfilled in it, if that's the source of his love for us, how much does he love us? K. 
Can it ever change? No, it can't. It can't. Because it's an eternal love. It's a different quality of love that he has for us. And so, why would we question his love for us? Why would we question his care for us? We must trust him according to who he is. If Jesus is for you, like we sang in the song, is if God is with us, if God is for us, which we know that he is in the incarnation because he became one of us, because he lived a life like ours, because he died for us on the cross and rose to give us a new life, if all that is true, and there's nothing else he can do to show us how much he loves us, why would we not trust him? And why would we, would we question our circumstances that he puts us in? If Jesus is for us, that means that all the power, all the wisdom of creation is for us. Now squeeze that into your marriage and into your friendships and into your school and into your stress and into your depression. Squeeze that into that. Think about the, the vastness of resource that God has for you, that's accessible to you as his child, as the one he chose to love. We cannot use words like insurmountable when we talk about obstacles in our lives. Because the, the resource that God has for us is much more than the obstacles we have. There's nothing in your life that cannot be overcome with God's help. Because all the power of creation, all the wisdom of creation is given you in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about your parenting, your financial problems, your health concerns, your, your marriage issues. Think about that. And think who is on your side. Think who wants you to do well. Who wants you to succeed. It's amazing. Well, that's the message of John, the first five verses. The exalted vision of Christ. And if we see it, if we see who he is, we must apply it. We must live according to that. We must treat him differently. We must trust him differently. And that's what I encourage you to do. We're going to come and take communion. If you're not a Christian, if this exalted vision of Christ makes no sense to you, if it doesn't move you, it's you're not with Christ, you're not part of this family. Don't come to the table just because everybody else is. Stay where you are and embrace him. Pray that Jesus would come into your life with all the power of creation, that he would come into your life and change you. Pray for that. The rest of us, those who have been reconciled to Christ through his spirit, through the gospel, who understand and believe that Jesus came for us, that the divine person became human, suffered and died, bled for us, and rose again to give us a new life. Those of us who are there, let's come to the table and celebrate. Let's celebrate. Let's look back what he, he did for us. But let's also look forward that Jesus is coming back. Every time you come to the table, you proclaim his death until he comes. Because he's coming. The second advent of Christ is still ahead of us. Let's focus on that as well. If there's some repentance that's appropriate for you today, maybe take an extra minute and just stay at your seat. Maybe take communion and bring it to your seat and just reflect on who God is, on who Christ is. Reconcile those thoughts with your experience and ask for forgiveness if you treated him.